0: Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dufan from the Center for Biblical Unity and Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Hello and welcome to All the Things. I'm Monique Dufan. I'm Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom, and we're broadcasting live from the woods of Alabama.
1: Yes, yeah, we're in Birmingham. We're actually, if anybody's familiar with Birmingham, we're in an area called Irondale. And so we are just outside of um, Birmingham proper. And that is where we are coming to you from
0: tonight. There's uh, just a lot more trees than we're used to. It's a lot more
1: everything. <laughs> a lot more trees, a lot more bugs. Hills. No, Everything, kinda... in,
0: in, everything in Birmingham is like on a hill. But just going up the hill, down the hill and around the curve. There's no lights. No, they're not big on street lights here, but I love it. It's a good area. <laughs> yes. So we are staying in an Airbnb and um, facing the kitchen. <laughs> yes. And we're
1: here because as you announced or as it was announced today on your Theology Mom um, account on Facebook, you're taking a class at Birmingham Theological Seminary.
0: Yeah. Just trying to learn some things in my old age. Trying to fill in some gaps in my knowledge, you know, then doing, doing ministry and working in apologetics in a long time, for a long time. I I just recognize there's certain holes in my knowledge and things I need to work on. So working on that. I'm trying to teach you as much as I can. I know. All right. (laughs) Just making sure, (laughs) just making
1: sure, you know, you're doing a good job. Well, welcome to our show tonight. Tonight's show is brought to you by the Center for Biblical Unity. The Theology Mom Podcast. And Family 210 Clothing. I am not sure who our moderators are tonight. (laughs) Or if we have. I
0: I think it might be uh, Yente is making her maiden voyage as a chat box moderator. Oh, wow. Okay. And someone else. I don't remember. I'm sorry. Oh, maybe it is Jennifer Bidel? Yes, that's right.
1: Oh, my goodness gracious. Sorry, guys. Yeah.
0: Well, and helping us on the show tonight and every pretty much all the time is the one and only professional button pusher, Bob Bontrager.
1: I forgot to introduce him. Sorry,
0: Bob. There we are. Scott has got the, the B on his hat for Bob. So, all right. So we are live. So make sure to engage with us and uh, help support the show. Uh, click on that thumbs up, share the show. Uh, This is something you're going to not want to miss. And uh, we have an exciting show tonight. Why don't you give a little bit of the setup here? Oh,
1: so I really like, um, introducing people that I really like. (laughs) And so Elisa Childers is one of those people that I really like. I call her auntie Elisa, um, because, oh my gosh, like she's just a little wealth of wisdom and knowledge. I can always send her a text message when I'm like, what in the world? She gives you the auntie wisdom. Yes. Like, okay. So earlier this week, late last week, she wasn't in town and I was like, I need to talk. So I text her. I was like, are you all right? Are you home yet? Cause I need wisdom. I need auntie advice. I need to talk. Yes. So thankfully she was home already, but Alisa's um, part of the reason why CFBU um, has gotten out to the mashes. She's <laughs> she, part of the reason. She is yeah. She's pretty well, I mean, much a major part Elisa, of the Alisa, Natasha, and Nancy, Nancy Piercy, it was like the trifecta. Yeah. Yes. But as many or most of you know, um, Alisa Childers is the author of Another Gospel, which um really takes a look into her life and struggling with progressive Christianity and rejecting progressive progressive Christianity. Um, it's a very neat story that that um really just depicts like what is progressive Christianity and why do we need to be aware of it. So and she's got a new book coming out. She has an, and this is why we're talking to her now, because she has a new book coming out. Yeah. Yes.
0: So we're gonna talk about it. Yes, I'm excited. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm. I'm ready. So let's bring her on. Hey, oh, how
1: are you? Okay, you gotta unmute. I I, I think you're muted.
2: <laughs> <laughs> see, see that? You know, you mute because you're trying to like, you know, do it all right, and then you forget and you don't unmute. <laughs> That's
0: okay. It's okay. all guys. good.
2: <laughs> oh man. How's it going? I- it's going good. I, I I love hearing you guys talk in the beginning because you're like, oh, we need to, you know, text her when we need to pray. And I'm sitting over here like, I got to text Krista and Monique because I need prayer about stuff. <laughs> so I'm glad that we are, uh, that we have that for each other. It's great.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, sure. definitely.
1: What are hmm, you going to say? Nothing. Oh, goodness gracious. So what have you been up to? But like, oh. this isn't like your normal interview. This is us kind of just, you know, mm. a
0: family moment. just chopping it up. So what What? Yeah. what what's you. you been up to?
2: Yeah. You guys, you guys, it has been so crazy. So, uh, you know, for people who aren't familiar with my ministry, I do some speaking and I do writing and, you know, books and blogs and podcasts and all the things. Oh, but you do all the things, not just me. But <laughs> but uh, my husband was a, a road manager in country music for many years and just came off the road in December to come full time. Uh, To help with the ministry that I'm doing. And so it's, it's super busy right now, but it's so good because we're doing this together. And it's like, um, it's kind of the first time in our marriage when we're both sort of home at the same time. And so that's been kind of sweet. And we're homeschooling our kids for the first time this year. And that's been interesting. Krista, you've been, um, you know, so much help with that. I've been texting Krista, like, you know, what do I do for science? What do I do for English? And she's got all these great ideas. So, you know, thanks to you, my kids are off to the races with their homeschool, but it's been it's been really crazy around here, but good crazy.
1: Oh, and your kids are absolutely awesome. Um, they definitely have a special place in my heart. <laughs>
2: Well, you are anti Momo to them. I mean, you're anti Momo. So you have a special place to them as well.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes. All right. So you have a new book coming out. Let's talk about the title and what got you into like writing this, this book.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. So the book is called, and I just happen to have a copy right here. It's called Mm -hmm. live your truth and other lies exposing popular deceptions that make us anxious, exhausted and self-obsessed. And so uh, if anyone's familiar with my first book, it was sort of a, I guess it's like a theological memoir. It sort of walks the reader through my journey of going through a pretty intense faith crisis as a result of taking part of a class in a church that would end up uh, declaring itself to be a progressive Christian community. And so uh, the book is sort of walking through that journey with the reader, but also engaging with the movement of progressive Christianity along the way. It would progressive Christians believe? What are they teaching? What are the major thought leaders saying? And so in one sense, it was kind of theological in that I had to cover a a broad spectrum of topics like the atonement, the gospel, um, the the view of the Bible that progressives have. But there's this other sort of uh, thing that's hovering around progressive Christianity, and that's the messaging that we see from major thought leaders that are presenting themselves as more of like this self-help kind of Christian-ish, you know, you can be the best, best version of yourself kind of ideas. And so uh, live your truth being one of those main lies that we in in interact with on the book. But there's, there's sort of this, this emerging ideas, I think, in culture where culture has bought into two great lies. The first one being that humans are inherently good. I think that's the main message that my kids are facing when they Uh, engage with any media that's aimed at them. It's just telling them, hey, you're inherently good. Everything you're going to find inside yourself is something that's going to be beneficial to you and beneficial to the world. So you just need to unleash it. You need to find the gold inside of yourself and just kind of let that out into society. But then the other great lie our culture has bought into is this idea that truth is fluid, that truth isn't really absolute or objective, but it's something that's really relative to each person. And then when you put those two lies together, essentially what you have is this idea of live your truth. It's kind of like, hey, whatever I find inside myself is going to be good. So I just need to to dig down, do some deep self-exploration, some self-help, some self-care, let all of that out and live my truth. And then the idea in culture is that's going to be a good thing for other people. But of course, as Christians, we know that what's inside of us, what we're going to find in there is not something that's inherently good. It's actually something that's fallen, something that's inherently sinful and broken. And so that's something that actually needs to be fixed. It needs to be realigned. It needs to be reconciled to a holy God. And then also we know that truth is objective. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Christianity is really built upon the objective truth of Jesus' resurrection, the things he claimed about himself, and it and it demands things of people. So if Christianity is true in reality, it's true for everyone, and it demands that everyone bow their knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in every area of their life. But of course, this is radically countercultural because we're just told, hey, you got to find out what's inside of yourself and then contribute that to the world. and it's going to inevitably be something good. But as Christians, we know that that's just the wrong message.
0: I think that's really interesting and insightful i don't know if i've ever put that together quite that way before that this idea of kind of unleashing your authentic self is a reflection or is rooted in a deeper belief that humans are basically good mm-hmm. and that what we need to do is by releasing that authentic self that's going to release good in the world and good for ourselves but you know, I, what strikes me about that is that it seems like there's a growing trend of living my authentic truth, living my authentic self, even if that means abandoning my marriage mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. Um, you know, finding happiness outside of the life that I've built. I, it, I don't know, maybe if you want to comment on that, is that kind of connected to, to what you're talking about and how it shows up in, in real life?
2: Yeah, in fact what you've just touched on is one of the lies we talk about in the book and one of those lies is the lie that God just wants me to be happy. Right? Mm-hmm. We think we think and I think even Christian parents can fall into this. Like we look at our kids and we think, well, if they just have a happy life, if if they um feel satisfied in their marriages and in their situations then that's the measure of success right i just want my kids to be happy but ultimately what we just you know what we kind of dig down into in the book is that ultimately that's not really what god has for you in fact there is a great a benefit that christians can look to when it comes to suffering. I tell the story of my friend Maydeen, who spent 18 months as a refugee in Congo, in her native country of Congo, and just the, the absolutely just terrible circumstances that she and her family found themselves in constantly. And yet, at the same time, you see how God was working in their lives. You see the deep and rich abiding joy that they all have. Um, having had the opportunity to rely only on the Lord and nothing else. It's like nothing they can work up in themselves. It's nothing they can just, you know, grasp onto from culture. It's really ultimately leaning on the Lord. And then that deep abiding joy that we have. But the the fun thing in the book is that we swing back around and we say, you know, actually God does want you to be happy, but we have to define happiness biblically Mm -hmm. and how the Bible talks about Uh, being ultimately fulfilled is when we are worshiping God, when we're in relationship with Him, when we're being sanctified. In other words, we're being made more and more like Him every single day. When we're in that process, that is going to produce the greatest amount of joy. But the cool thing is, as you alluded to, Krista, you know, we can be in a marriage situation that isn't that happy. We can be in a, we can live in a town maybe that isn't the, you know, the first place we would have chosen to live. We can actually be sexually unsatisfied. I tell, this, I tell this to women when I go speak at women's conferences. I say, you know, you can actually be sexually unfulfilled and you're not going to die. Like, I know that the culture is telling you the opposite of that, but you're not going to die because ultimately as culture sort of places these various levels of importance on these different things like sexual fulfillment or marriage, or even having, you know, the right amount of kids or that great dream job or the big house or whatever it might be. Ultimately, as Christians, what freedom to know that whatever situation that we're in, We can rely on the Lord. We can have a deep abiding joy in being in relationship with him and ultimately fulfilling our purpose, which is to worship God and being in his presence forever. And so it it gives us, I think it opens up our options so that when we're in situations that might not be what we dreamed of, we can rely on the Lord and have great satisfaction and great deep abiding joy in being in relationship with him.
1: And um, there was something that I think you and Krista were saying that reminded me of, I want to say it's Rousseau, who looked at humans as being just inherently good people. I think we see this playing out in the culture. His um, A lot of his idea was, you know, we are good people and it is culture and, you know, things outside of us that then make us bad so to speak or needing to be fixed um and I believe I'm getting the philosopher right I believe it's Rousseau but it's it's so true that we are you know sinful people and if you don't think you're sinful I'm gonna tell you right now I will admit I am the reason why we can't have nice things like (laughs) I, I am that one what are when I guess when you look out into culture what are some of the the lies or um gosh, either pitfall, stumbling blocks in messaging that you would say is enhancing this message of, you know, you can find your own truth. You can mm. um be the best you and then put that out there to create a better society.
2: Yeah. Well, I think you've nailed, nailed it on the head. It's like, there's this big question right now and every I think where people land on how they answer this question is going to determine the trajectory of their life and that is do you think uh, humans are inherently sinful or do you think they're inherently good? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, that is going to determine where you're going to go politically, where you're going to go theologically, where you're going to go sociologically, psychologically, how you're going to parent, how you're going to you know, be in relationship with your spouse. That is the fundamental question. And right now in our culture, the number one message, I mean, I see this Everywhere I turn, especially with all of the media that's aimed at my kids. My kids are about, let's see, we've got 14 and 11. So right there in the middle of that Gen Z generation, and everything that's aimed at them is telling them, hey... You what you have inside of yourself is perfect. It's good. You just need to kind of dig down in there and unleash that gold onto the world. But the problem is, is that you know, if you answer the question in the other way, if you know that you're inherently sinful, then you don't actually want to unleash all of that onto the world. There's something that has to happen uh in the interim, right? That that's that's a problem that needs to be fixed. But one of the lies we talk about in the book is this lie, you are enough. And I always tell people, you know, I make a little disclaimer, like if you have this stitched on a pillow in your house or you have an I am enough tattoo, you know, hang with me. Don't don't get mad and walk away, because here's the thing. These slogans that we're dealing with in the book, things like, you know, you are enough. You're perfect just as you are. You should put yourself first. uh, You're in control of your own destiny. You only live once. God just wants you to be happy. All of these are kind of like slogans that could appear to be kind of neutral. So if you're just taking them at face value, if you filter them through a biblical worldview, you can kind of make them make sense, right? But if you filter them through how the world intends them to be understood, really, these are not just ideas that fail on a common sense level, like on a logical level. But if you dig down to the bottom, they actually cause a great deal of spiritual rot and real real devastation, really. I mean, just think about the idea of you are enough. First of all, just on the common sense level, uh, I remember I tell the story in the book of when I gained 80 pounds with my first pregnancy and I had never experienced, you know, the, just the weight, the physical weight on my bones of after giving birth to Dylan and she didn't weigh 80 pounds. So I came home with all that weight, you know, like, I don't know what I was thinking, like, she didn't weigh eighty pounds, but I came home with all this weight, and not only did I have those kind of physical things to deal with, but also, um, and I've talked to her about this, and and she knows that you know I I can kind of joke about this now, but she was a very unhappy baby. Like if she was conscious, she was crying. So our first you know five six months was really really difficult, and I remember one time thinking. Hey, you know, maybe I can just take her to the mall and walk her around and maybe that'll make her happy. But at four months old, I put her in the stroller and it turns out she did not enjoy that. She did not enjoy being (laughs) strapped into strollers or car seats or anything like that. And I remember just sitting down on this bench in the mall and just kind of having this meltdown moment where I was like, I mean, is this ever going to feel better? Am I ever going to feel like I'm a good mom? I felt like I was failing at every turn. And so years later, I saw a, a magazine article that said to every exhausted mom out there, you are enough. And I, I thought back to that moment when I had sat down on that bench, just totally exasperated at my wits end. And if somebody would have come up to me and said, hey, you are enough. I think I would have wanted to punch him in the face, right? Because I knew deep down in that moment that I wasn't enough. I couldn't figure out how to make my baby happy. I couldn't figure out how to be healthy physically. I couldn't figure out how to do things in the right way. And so to tell me in that moment, you are enough, that would have put a great burden on me. And our friend, Ellie Beth Stuckey, in her book, Uh, You're Not Enough and That's Okay, she made a really insightful observation where she said, The self can't both be the problem and the solution. Mm -hmm. And so I think when we tell people you are enough, it's based on the assumption that they're inherently good, but really it's not just that we're putting a burden on them to where we're saying, not only are, do you know, do you have to search down inside yourself and find all the good there, but you have to solve all your own problems. Like you're enough. There's nothing outside of you that you need to complete you or to fix you or to help you. Like it's already all inside you. And I, I note in the book that that's a real burden to put on people. So that's just the common sense level. But of course, spiritually, we know it goes so much deeper because we know as Christians that we are inherently fallen. We need a savior. We need somebody outside of ourselves. And the great news is that our savior, Jesus, lived a perfectly sinless life. So he is enough. He, he's, he actually is enough and he's better than we'll ever be. And so that's such great news because the Bible talks about Jesus' righteousness getting imputed onto us so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our not-enoughness. He sees the enoughness of Jesus, and Jesus is way better than we'll ever be. So that's really great news, but it's only great news if you know that you're a sinner.
1: Amen and amen. And girl, I am so glad that you put that disclaimer out there that if you have the tattoo, <laughs> we aren't talking about you. Because one day I'll tell the story of when Krista told me, you know, your tattoo don't really mean what you think it means. <laughs> Do you have an I enough I am enough tattoo? No, morning? not an I have an I Am Enough tattoo. It's um it's faith and it's it's Jeremiah 2911.
2: Oh, yeah. Uh huh. That's going to uh-huh. be your reminder for good hermeneutics for the rest of your life. Your life. Yeah, that's it. Because one
1: day she like, well, tell me about your tattoo. Girl, we are all the way off track. But she was like, yeah, honey, um, that doesn't mean
2: what you think it means.
0: I just spoil everything.
2: Party poopers. Hey, we're all party poopers now, right? <laughs> that is so true. Okay, go ahead. Keep going.
0: Well, I think that kind of leads me to the subtitle of your book that I wanted to ask you about. And and that setup is, is really good because like, you know, draw the the connection for me on how these lies lead us to be anxious, exhausted, and self-obsessed. Mm-hmm. And I think you really touched on it there of, you know, if we are both the problem and the solution, yes, that would leave me pretty anxious <laughs> and exhausted. But if Jesus is ultimately the the solution that intervenes then there is hope but i'm wondering you know man the the messaging is so strong even in our churches you know about this you know you're enough and and my truth and live your truth and all of this but so many of our women are anxious Mm -hmm. and it's, it's palpable when we go out and speak. And, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that when you go out and speak, you know, hearing the, the, the stories and, and the anxiety, I mean, give us a feel for, you know, how you're thinking about that issue of the, the anxiety and the self-obsessed nature of it. And what you see in your conversations as you're out
2: traveling and speaking. You know, that's a really interesting question in relationship to this book, because this book was actually birthed from a talk that I had been giving at women's conferences for years. And so this was a talk that was originally called Pretty Little Lies. Now, the book Live Your Truth and Other Lies is not just for women. It's kind of just um, I, I put in some lies that affect everyone, right? Not just women, but men and women. But it it was birthed out of a talk I gave at women's conferences and one of the biggest responses i've had to the talk now in the talk we just deal with like five or six of the lies and we expand out and get get into more of them in the book but um it's it's interesting because with another gospel i had a lot of people tell me this book really gave a language to what i was seeing you know i had these red flags and now i understand what all of this is about but with live your truth and other lies one of the main responses i've had especially even from christian women is them coming up to me or writing me notes saying, hey, I didn't realize that I had actually bought into a lot of these lies. I had been persuaded by these lies. I didn't realize it. Um, I got a note from a woman at a conference where she said, on the way here, I was listening to Glennon Doyle's podcast and Jen Hatmaker's podcast. And then I heard your talk and I realized that I didn't, I had not realized how much I'd been influenced by all of these ideas. And so if I'm just, you know, if I just want to get down to brass tacks, this book, it really is a response to people like Glennon Doyle and Rachel Hollis and Jen Hatmaker, who, you know, they kind of uh, present themselves as Christians, and even many of them starting out as Christian mommy bloggers, so to speak, where they had blogs that were aimed at Christian moms, and then they had successful books, went on Oprah, and then had all this secular success to where I'm seeing their books in Costco and Sam's Club. And and so much of the messaging, especially in, uh, in particular in Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed, Um, This is what's leading to the anxiety and the self-obsession, particularly the self-obsession. The entire book, Untamed, which was, by the way, like the most popular book of 2020, I believe, or at least it was for a good portion of the year across all genres. And in this book, Glennon Doyle regularly conflates the self with God. She talks about the self and God as if they're essentially the same thing. She talks about going into her closet where she meditates and she kind of sinks lower and finds this liquid gold inside of herself to where she eventually says, I only make decisions based on my knowing. Now, she says... (laughs) I'm sorry, your faces are amazing right now because people on camera can see your faces, but they're so great. Oh, they, they
1: can't see them, but um, I'm like, yo, yo they are both just gold like, and you're knowing.
2: <laughs> yeah, but she calls this liquid gold, her knowing, and she actually spells knowing with a capital K. And so there's sort of this like elevated authority given to this knowing that she finds inside of herself to the point where she says, I now only make decisions based on my knowing. So if it feels warm, if it feels good, she says yes. If it feels cold, if it feels bad, she says no. And guys, this book is like, I mean, this might sound kind of crazy to some of our Christian listeners, but this book was, like I said, number one across all genres, New York Times bestseller. This is a book that celebrities like Reese Witherspoon and Adele are saying, you know, like this this book is like life changing for me. And lots of Christian women have been swept up into this as well. And it, it gets so bad in the book Untamed that at the end, she literally ends the book by, Uh, talking about, or she's sort of implicitly talking about God speaking to Moses at the burning bush, identifying himself as I am. And then she asks herself a series of questions. She says, you know, Glennon, what are you? And she lists all these different things that she thinks she is. And then the entire book ends with her saying, Glennon, who are you? And she says, I am, I am, I am three times, which I think is a strong inference to the trinity. And she's essentially saying, everybody, hey, you need to worship yourself. Like you need to, you know, God is already inside you and you just need to find him. In fact, in the book, I mean, many of your viewers may find this humorous, but she says, I don't care what you call what you find inside of yourself. She said she has a friend who calls it Sebastian. She's you could call it whatever you want, but you just need to listen to it. And that's your authority. And so, I mean, I know it seems so crazy to us, but women in particular are buying into this in droves. I mean, this is like such a popular message right now.
1: See, when I look deep inside myself, the only person I find is Petty Mo. (laughs) And I like, I personally enjoy Petty Mo, but I wouldn't go to her for advice. Petty (laughs) Mo will land you in jail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for a fight in costco one of the two yeah
2: yeah petty yeah. petty mo needs to be sanctified just like you know shalisa that i i call my unsanctified <laughs> self that i find inside sometimes she doesn't yes. get to comment on social media very often i keep her kind of quiet but
0: yeah we we, we keep yeah. petty mo off off social media Penny mo
1: is not allowed on social media no no <laughs> no no but i think i think you bring up a this a very interesting point point. and it Gosh, it makes me think of a couple of things. One, you said that, you know, me, and Krista said the same thing, that there are many women who grab onto this and then you find it in your children, not children's ministry, but in your women's ministry. And, you know, all of these people are now circulating, Glennon Doyle, around the church and all that. And I'm wondering, like, have you considered what, well, one, do you think women are more susceptible to this type of messaging? And if so,
2: why? Mm. Well, that's the question. And I get asked that question quite a bit. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if women are more susceptible because I actually personally know of men who have read Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed, or even Girl, Wash Your Face. And it has changed the trajectory of their life and how they view truth and God and themselves and all these different things. We need a
0: doctoral dissertation. We need some research or a Barna study. Yeah. Yeah. We
2: we really do because it's, I mean, at this point it would just be anecdotal, but just even in my own ministry, I've had both women and men come up to me and say, hey, my spouse read, um, I, at least I don't want to exaggerate this. There have been at least two scenarios where people have come to me and one was male and one was female saying my spouse read Glennon Doyle's Untamed and they've now left the family. They're living their truth. They're kind of going out to find their best life now. And they've left uh, the, their family in the dust and and their families are just in their own personal hells because of the personal choices of just one member of their family. So, it has. When I say that there's there's spiritual rot and devastating effects on people's lives and families, I, I'm really not exaggerating. I think some of these ideas um, that cause you to sort of turn inward, focus on yourself, particularly the lies that tell you that you should be, you know, the first of your priorities. This was a big message. In the Rachel Hollis Girl, Wash Your Facebook, where she says you should be the hero of your own story. You should be the very first of your own priorities. And she basically says, like, whatever your dream is in life, whatever it is, you need to just do whatever you have to do to make that happen. If the door is closed, kick down the door. If the windows are closed, you know, break it and crawl through. I mean, she's just like break into whatever you have to do to make your dreams come true. But I mean, I can just tell you from personal experience that the dreams I've had for myself, haven't always been God's dream for me, right? They've been selfish dreams or dreams of wanting success that God wouldn't necessarily define as success. And so I talk in the book about how I've given up on two big dreams in my life, one of them being a singer-songwriter. Like I guys, I, when I was younger, I had these visions that I would be singing and people would be, you know, coming to God in droves and I would have told you at that time, "Oh, my motives are so good, right? This is for the glory of God. I want to to have all this this big ministry that people will come to the Lord." But looking back on it now, 2030 Plus years later, uh, my motives weren't pure. There was pride in there. I was young. I hadn't been through enough sanctification to know whether or not that was God's dream for me, right? And I'm so glad. I praise God that he led me to give up on that dream. And the other dream goes back even further, so when I, I, mean, when I was, everybody's got something like this, right? I was about 11 years old and I was going to be the next Olympic gymnast. You know, I wanted, I watched Mary Lou Retton win the gold in the 1984 Olympics and I was going to be her, right? And I was going to share the gospel and I was going to do all these great things for God, but like, that wasn't what God had for me. And I think that, that these messages that teach us to be so self-focused really miss the mark because guys, we don't always know what's best for us, right? That's why we are on this process or in on this journey of being sanctified, being made more and more uh, into the image of Christ day by day that will continue until we're face to face with him. And man, I just look back on my life and I'm so thankful that I didn't follow the advice of people like Rachel Hollis or Glennon Doyle, who would have told me, don't give up until you achieve that dream. I think we've all seen enough American Idol episodes to know that that's not always the best path, right?
0: Mm. Oh man, I I can so identify with that. And you and I have talked about this before because we both had dreams that we were like, oh man, I thought this is what I really wanted. And it was all for God and, and all of this, and you could kind of sanctify it and baptize it. and But man, am I glad that that did not go my way. You mm. know, I thought in my thirties, like my dream was, I wanted to be on the women of faith tour. I wanted to, you know, be speaking to stadiums of people, of course, in the real world, I only had 300 followers, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, I, I, I really wanted that. And I, the the sin that I struggled with for so many years of ministry, jealousy of people that had the bigger platforms and had a bigger voice. And yet God worked through that process with me where it became a, a tearing down of my pride. It became a, a refining process for me. And I think that the ministry of Center for Biblical Unity arrived right on time.
2: Mm.
0: And, you know, in my fifties, because I was like, I finally had killed enough of that dream that then I could really do what I do for the Lord. But man, it's, if I had been in that mindset of, I want this no matter what, and anyone who holds me back is, they're just toxic and I need to cut them out of my Mm. life and they're just wrong. Like, man, that would have been such a misstep in God's plan for my life. What are you laughing at?
1: Because I'm just like, y'all are so cute and precious. Y'all had such (laughs) sanctified dreams. I wanted to be a professional boxer. Like (laughs) like, I was always ready. (laughs) Like, or it was a, like, I've always wanted to do social service. So I, I figured I would always like have either a group home or an orphanage, but like on the side, I was going to be a professional boxer and like, <laughs> and like teach well, kids how to get at alley if you needed to. Like, I don't. I. Yeah.
2: Well, listen, Monique, I relate because when I was a kid, I don't know if you guys remember this, but all of those world vision commercials where they would show the starving you know, Ethiopian kids. And like my heart just would go, I remember writing letters to World Vision, giving them all my allowance, like, please save all these kids that are, that are starving. So, so Monique, my dream about being an Olympic gymnast, that was for a particular end. And I write about this in the book. I wanted to win the Olympic gold so that I could go to Africa and teach starving Ethiopian children to do gymnastics so that they could work themselves out of poverty. So I was like this missionary gymnast philanthropist in my own in my own mind.
1: Again, so cute. I vowed, I vowed that I would never leave America because I always needed a mall. You are so <laughs> precious, like. Yeah, I'm the reason why the family can't have nice things. But I think that it's great. We all have dreams, you know. Mm-hmm. Hey, there's a question from Tiana on YouTube and let me see if I can find it. Okay. um, Bob is from Tiana Walden and she says, what apologetic ministries in churches help with curbing the desire for cultural approval?
2: Hmm. That's an interesting question. I, so here's what I think I, as I've, So this is going to relate in my mind to the deconstruction conversation. So like that's kind of the world I'm in right now. I'm researching and writing a book on deconstruction. And what I'm really learning in uh, just studying the deconstruction stories is that it's not always just that an apologetics class would necessarily just by itself insulate kids from deconstructing or from following culture or something like that. I think it's a huge... Uh, thing that was missing that we need to you know do better with. We do need to teach kids what the truth is, why we, wh- how we know what's true, why we believe the Bible is God's word, and give them answers for all of the whys behind the whats. I think that's hugely important. But um, there's been some really interesting research done. Um, everybody's kind of aware of the idea of the, the they call it the youth exodus, right? So. Depending on which study you're looking at, anywhere from 70 to 90% of kids leaving the church after high school, I think that number gets a lot lower when you consider the ones that come back. So maybe 45% to 50%. That's still like half our kids, right? Even at the most conservative estimates, half our kids are leaving the church after high school. And there have been so many studies done on why they're leaving, but there, there was one study done on the kids who stayed. And what's really interesting is that when you look at the the things that were consistent in the homes of the kids who didn't leave church after high school, there were some some things all of the households had in common. And interestingly, it wasn't just apologetics, right? I do think apologetics is really important because we got to teach kids to think critically, know why they believe what they do. But we're looking at things where like the the in the homes where the kids didn't leave the church they had family dinners five out of seven nights i mean that's not something you would really think about and you go well that's going to keep kids in church or in relationship with god but honestly when you look at all of the factors it really comes down to the family it comes down to there being genuine faith expressed in the homes that these kids grew up in in other words They didn't just go to church on sunday and pay their respects and then just live like the world the rest of the week they lived it out throughout the week they had at least one what they called i believe it was called a um a a faith encounter and that doesn't mean that the kid had some kind of big encounter with god in the week it just meant that their family took time to read the bible or to pray together outside of the actual four walls of the church and so really what this tells me is that in the homes where the kids stayed There was not a lot of legalism and there was genuine faith expressed. In other words, the parents were really living it out. And so I think that, um, you know, just to answer that, that question in a broader sense, apologetics is a huge part of that. I think especially in the skeptical age, we have to know how to answer people's questions that they have about why we trust the Bible, why we believe God exists and all of these other things. But ultimately, I think that we can't lose the plot on how important the family is and, and, and for children to have a mom and a dad. And 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 please hear me. I know there are people listening to this where you're a, you're a single parent, you know, in a situation that you didn't ask for. Oh my goodness, God can work so strongly in your situation and will work mightily in your situation. But I'm just saying for those of us who have the opportunity to maybe sit down at dinner once a week I mean just little things like that uh go so far to help stabilize the faith of our kids I truly believe that
0: Yeah I agree I mean I think that I would like to see more studies on that issue of what makes kids stay I would love to see some more drilling down mm-hmm. on on that issue um I know that our friend Natasha Crane is having George Barna on her podcast soon to really drill down on his recent worldview numbers. So I'm looking forward to hearing that, but I would love to hear see some more studies on on the kids that stay, that that would be interesting. Um, I think that another thing that it would probably be good for us to highlight in this conversation about living in the my truth world is the issue of objective truth. You know, our friend Nancy Piercy has done a lot to talk about um, this faith value split, you know, that there is uh, some knowledge that is objective, you know, things like science and math and and empirical experiences. And we look at those things as being objective truth we look at things like religious beliefs, moral beliefs as being, you know, subjective truth. I think it would be good for us to to talk about the the ramifications of living in a my truth culture Mm. where truth has become so relative. And, you know, how do we think about objective truth? What is objective versus subjective truth? And in you know, how does that really impact how we're how we live in the real world?
2: Yeah, I think that's the key question right now because you know, if you look at the classical definition of what truth is, truth is what's real. Truth is a proposition, a belief, or a statement that lines up with reality. And I think, you know, if we're fair, I think most people in the world, they don't live as if you know, relativism is true. if if all truth is just relative to each person, right? Everybody expects that they go to the bank. they're going to they're going to have a certain amount of money in there. they're They're going to live as if objective truth is real when it comes to things like mathematics or science. But as our friend Nancy Piercy has pointed out, what our culture has done is relegated. Um, you know, the the idea of subjective, in other words, more of an opinion, something like if I were to say, you know, chocolate is the best flavor of ice cream and you said strawberry is the best flavor of ice cream, there's really no objective standard by which to decide which one of us is correct on that, which means that's really an opinion, right? That's a preference. That's something that's uh, subjective. In other words, it's just kind of depends on the subject, me and what's between my ears, like what's in my own brain, right? So that's an opinion. So our culture has taken anything related to the topics of morality and religion, and they've put them in that category of subjective. So whereas we might say, you know, my favorite flavor is ice cream, and somebody might say, well, I think, you know, the religion that works for me is Buddhism, or the religion that works for me is Christianity. But we know that, you know, religion and morality can't be put in the ice cream category because God exists or he doesn't right there's no like opinion about that and if he does exist and he has revealed himself in a certain way and made claims about what it means to be in relationship with him or the nature of humans then we don't really get to say well i'm just going to live my truth with that and you can live your truth so it's not an it's not in the ice cream category this is more in the, like the banking and mathematics and science category and i've told my kids this it's interesting You know, as I, um, because because I even see how much my kids are influenced by the culture around them, which is largely postmodern. It's relativistic. It's kind of you know, you do you, I'll do me. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. Um, That influences my kids, right? And so I remember having a talk with one of my kids and saying, you know, Christianity is true. And my my kid, I'm I'm not I'm gonna try to speak very broadly so nobody would know which one it is, but you know, my kid said, well, you know, it's not like you know, people have their beliefs. I mean, I believe Christianity is true, but I'm not going to say for somebody else that they have to believe it's true. And and then I I responded to my child. I said, well, imagine if I taught you math that way. If I said, you know, two plus two equals four for you, but for me, it could mean something else. And I'm not going to tell somebody they're wrong that two plus two equals four. So my child said to me, well, but I mean, Christianity isn't like math. And I said, oh, it's exactly like math. It would be totally irresponsible for me to teach you that you can believe two plus two equals four, but it's fine if everybody else believes that it's equals five, right? That wouldn't be right. That would actually be wrong for me to to say that like, it's okay, you can come up with whatever answer you want. And I said, Christianity is exactly like math because it's true or it's false And that's the thing, that's the claims that Christianity makes about itself that's so different than any any other religion. I mean, if you think about all the other religions and the way they originated, you have, uh, you know, Islam with Muhammad in the cave getting the revelation of the Quran, or you have Buddha sitting under a tree, or you have, you know, all the various ways some of these philosophical systems and religious systems have come to be. And ultimately, they don't make claims to objective truth. They basically say, like, here's a way to live your life that will make your life better. You know the 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 eight uh, what is it the eight path uh eightfold path to enlightenment in buddhism yeah. it's like eightfold path yeah. You know you have all these things you do to get practical effects but there's not really a claim to objective truth being made whereas christianity does make those claims. And so that's the thing I I try to tell my kids and I try to explain even in this book is that You know, Jesus is who he said he was, or he's not, right? This is the big argument uh, C.S. Lewis came up with. Either he was telling the truth, or he was crazy, or he was lying. And then, of course, people have added to that now and said, well, or he was legendary. He didn't even really exist. But one of those things is true, right? He either was who he said he was, or he wasn't, or he was crazy, or he was something else. But if he was who he said he was, then we all have to deal with those claims, and so that's why objective truth is so important for Christians, because it's not just a philosophy. It's not just a way to live your life. This is making claims about reality itself, which gets to the heart of the very definition of truth.
0: That's so good. And, and um, if people want to check out kind of a more technical answer to that question, we did a, a show about a year and a half ago with a philosopher, our friend, uh, Aaron Preston. Preston. Yeah. On my truth. And he walked us through all the 20th century history of philosophy and all that, which is, you know, kind of in the backstory of everything that that Elisa just said, Elisa's version is like the every man on this street. You know, this is how um, we see this, this show is, up yeah. <laughs> yeah, in our, in our churches and on the soccer field and, you know, at PTA meetings, this this is, you know, for the regular people, but that's that's so good because um when our religion and our moral values get relegated to the place of just being an opinion, um, that's where things can get really off the rails pretty quickly um, in our conversations with people. I think mean, so- things
1: have gotten off the rails pretty quickly. I mean, when you when you think about, you know, just subjective truth and what's true for me, that's, that is everything I feel like we're seeing right now in our culture. You know, when we talk about pronouns and gender ideology, when we talk about race, it's all about, well, what's true for you right now we're dealing with. And I think we talked about this a little bit behind the scenes, like of, um, you know, comments on, on Instagram and things like, well, that that's true for white people. But that this is true for black people. Well, no. To at some point we have to understand that Christianity offers a, an objective truth that the two plus two is going to equal the four, and that is regardless of skin color of you know whatever your gender is or things like that. Um, we have a question on Facebook. Is it Facebook and, or YouTube? Well, it was. I'm sorry. It it's on Jennifer put it on YouTube, but um, Amy put it's on Facebook originally. Okay. I believe it's from Amy Burks. Hey, Amy. Um, she says, "How should we biblically focus on being faithful in commitments you've made and goals you may have for your ministry or personal dreams, as opposed to what these books present?" And how do you discern if your dreams are prideful or truly what God would have you do?
2: Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the, the big question, right? That's the big like question, how, isn't it? Yes. It's the big one, right? Um, so our friend TC Cannon wrote a great book about this called Lord, Where's My Calling? And I thought Ooh. she really did a great job of getting to the heart of where I think we can get hung up sometimes. I think so many of us grew up In the, uh, you know, just this spiritual environment where we were like, oh man, we got to find, I got to find my big calling, right? What's my big calling in life? And what I think TC points out so brilliantly in her book is that we actually, as Christians, we all have the same calling and that's to glorify God wherever we are. So she compares it to a vacuum cleaner. She says, you know, a vacuum cleaner, the point of a vacuum cleaner is to suck up dirt. And you're going to, if you're a vacuum cleaner, you're going to suck up dirt, whether you're in a palace or whether you're in a shack, right? That's your job. You're going to do that. So as Christians, our job is to glorify God. And I just, you know, I'm I'm still working through a lot of this, but I personally think that I think there's a lot of detrimental and, and really bad theology to be found And the idea that I've got to, you know, determine for myself with this real specific vocation God has for me is. Because you know what? Vocation can change. I can tell you how much it can change going from gymnast to singer-songwriter to girl group singer to stay-at-home mom to blogger to podcaster to YouTuber to author. I mean, it's just changed a bunch of times. And when I look back in all those seasons, you know, God used me for a particular purpose in the season I was in, in the situation I was in. And if we get so hung up on one specific thing, I think that that can actually become an idol in our lives as Christians where we can say hey this you know this real specific idea of what i have for myself and what god wants me to do you know if that doesn't happen exactly as i envision it then i'm somehow falling short or i'm not obeying god or something like that whereas i kind of wish that all of us as Christians would have more of the mentality of, hey, I'm going to wake up today and I'm going to be faithful to God. I'm going to read the word. I'm going to try to get his word in my heart. I'm going to try to minister to whoever he puts in my path today. Uh, you know. And, and of course, being sensitive to the guidance of the Holy Spirit in your life, if he's leading you to particular ends, as that may go, but ultimately not to put so much pressure on ourselves to have this big thing we have to do. And I always tell this story because I just love it so much. But I have a a friend who loves apologetics and loves young people. And you know what he does? He's a high school janitor. And he sees that as a beautiful opportunity to be able to disciple high school kids, to get to know them, to be in their environment. But he's cleaning toilets. And let me just ask you this, like what kid grows up saying, oh, one day I want to clean toilets for Jesus, right? That's not usually the big dream we all have for ourselves. And I think that reveals our self motivate. you know, like our self-motivation sometimes is we have the real glamorous dream in our minds. But but ultimately, I mean, this guy is content and he's happy, he's smart. But is that really a dream any of us would have thought of for ourselves? Probably not. And that's why I think just, just it's a much better uh, approach to just say, God, I want to be faithful to you today. Whether that means I'm homeschooling my kids, or that means I'm going to an office, or I'm a teacher, or I am i have a big platform on social media, or I'm a television personality. I mean, whatever it may be, if that's our approach, then we can glorify God wherever we are. And then this kind of this, this pressure to to have this big dream or this big calling is sort of released because then God will open the doors And then we can walk through doors as they open, but we're not like kicking them down as all these self-help books tell us to do. Yeah,
0: I think, I I think it's such a good word. And just to add to that, you know, I'm now in the season of my children are grown. And as I look back on um, what I learned in those seasons when my children were small, um, I guess my advice to young moms is, I know the culture tells you that you can have it all. But that's a lie. Mm. (laughs) It's just a lie. And um, you can't have it all. Um, But whatever season that you're in, like I just an older woman told me when I was in my young 30s, she she gave me some really good perspective. And so I'm going to share this with, with everyone. Is it This was helpful to me. Maybe it'll be helpful to one or two people listening. Uh, Life is full of many seasons. Enjoy the season that you're in. And there's going to be hard seasons. There's going to be really good and peaceful seasons. There's going to be mixed seasons. There's going to be seasons of refining. If you if you really are focusing on learning how to obey the Lord in in the middle of the difficulty and there'll be seasons of great reward for that obedience and um it's it's just you you can't i know the feminists are here to tell you that you you can have it all but you just you, you can't and um you know i there's things that um will probably never be a reality for me because i chose to stay home and be with my kids and homeschool them um, I'll never, I'll probably never get a full-time job as a, a professor. That's what I wanted to do. That was the greatest aspiration of my life when I was 28 years old. That will probably never be a reality for me. It'll probably never be a reality for me that, you know, I'm going to get a PhD. Th- that's probably never going to be a reality for me. I chose to stay home and be with my kids and you know, work very part time for many, many years. Um, It just, and that's okay. And you know, what's great is I wish somebody would have told me this, but as I look back on it, I don't regret it. I don't regret not having all of those things. In the moment though, in my flesh, I really did want to have it all. And, um, Mm -hmm. but I don't know I think that's just kind of my perspective as an older woman in looking back on it and something sometimes you just have to say I can't have it all and sometimes you have to say I can't have it all right now mm-hmm. um, so maybe I'll have to wait until my kids are grown and then do something or I just do a little bit here and there as I'm able and then wait on the Lord to multiply it.
2: So there's a lot of different answers to that. That's just how it worked out for me. Krista, I think, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Monique. I was just going going to say, like, I think what you just said, Krista, is so important because people even ask me, they'll say, how do you do everything you do? And I just want to say, you have no idea how much I don't do, how much I say no to, how many things that I I have a vision, I could, you know, for, for a particular thing, but I just know that my kids need me in my home and I can't, I just can't, I do what I'm able. I think that's such a great way, way to word it. And it might seem like a lot, but I'm in a particular phase of my life or like I mentioned earlier, my husband's off the road, so he's full-time with me. So we're working on this thing together. So there's a lot we can do together. But but I mean, people would be blown away at the things I say no to and the things that I have to put on the back burner that I'm happy, thrilled to put on the back burner because my priorities are my family it's my relationship with god my family my children and then everything else gets attention and it might seem like a lot but it's it's probably less than you think right it's it really is and there's more that we could do if if we were just selfish and self-focused and just you know chasing that dream and kicking down every door and every window there's more i could think of to do but uh but like you said i don't regret the things i say no to because I have a, just a small window of my kids' lives to be their mom. Right.
0: Yeah. I, I think that's so true. And, and, um, I think that I can say yes to more because I'm in a different season of life than you are. And, you know, I don't have two kids at home anymore. Um, so there's more things I can say yes to, and there's, things I did say no to back in the day, you know, and, um, and I don't regret it. I think there's just, there's such strong messaging, uh, even in the church to follow your dreams and, and to capture, you know, live your truth and all of that. And it's so much of it. It's like, you know, just, just wait, like the, the, the Lord will work it out. I don't know how to mm-hmm. say it, and and that the Lord is even in the grind of of raising our children. I mean, even when we think like nothing's happening, um, in the day to day with our kids. Now I understand that I'm in my fifties. Like everything was happening in that, and that's not nothing. That's for those kids, it's such a limited season of life and it is everything for them. So those are all my old woman opinions <laughs> in, in this season of life that I'm in as I reflect, but all right, you were going to do something.
1: I was just going to say that um, your your comment was, you know, to young moms, you know, don't, you can't have it all. And as someone who's not a young mom, I would say that that messaging also comes this way, Mm -hmm. that you have to remember, even as a single person, even as someone who doesn't get married or have kids and do all the things that church tells you you should do, you still can't have it all. Like that isn't how we were designed. And it's a really good cultural message. But what I'm learning is that As I pursued a career, as I did all of these things, I still didn't have the husband and the kids. And so it's like, there's a message that says, oh, you should have all of these things. You should have the husband, the kids, the career, the house, the da-da-da-da, you know, and the list keeps going on and on and on. the, the, you can't have it all just looks different, dependent upon what side of the coin you're sitting on. So if yeah. I'm sitting on the side of the coin that's married with kids, I might not be able to do this and this and this, and that's okay. But if I'm sitting on this side where I'm doing X, Y, and Z, and God maybe hasn't, you know, brought a spouse for me, or maybe that's not in his plans for me or whatever, that's okay. Yeah. It There's just a reality, I think, that is that opens the conversation to say, This idea that anyone can have it all, do it all, be all, and all of that is just a a lie that I think keeps us in our striving. Mm -hmm. And it keeps us to like in this place of continually trying to seek out, how can I get, how can I, you know, do more instead of
0: just. Godly contentment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're, we're almost out of time here. I want to ask, ask what, um, What's an issue that you think that you see on the horizon for progressive Christianity? Mm -hmm. Like, where do you think this conversation is going as you're looking, you know, Mm -hmm. um, past the current wave, but looking at the wave that's coming in, what do you think are the issues that are coming in that maybe even a lot of people aren't seeing yet, but, but that you see?
2: Well, that's a really interesting question because I've thought a lot recently about the, you know, how important it might be in the next five years or so to update my book, Another Gospel, with a couple of extra chapters. And the the one chapter that I would definitely add to that, and it's, it's here, but it's still kind of down the road for a lot of people. And that's the um, so we think about progressive Christianity as tearing down historic Christianity, and for a long time, and even up until the time I read another gospel, that's really what it ultimately was. It was just a tearing down of the foundations of historic Christianity. But what has happened even since another gospel came out in twenty nineteen is a guy named Richard Rohr came out with a book called Universal Christ. And the universal Christ has sort of swept in as the dominant Christology and worldview of progressive Christians, I believe, since since my book even came out in 2019. So whereas it was just a kind of a more of a tearing down and you land where you land, more in a deconstruction kind of sense. Now it seems there's a building back up. With a a worldview, I mean, the the Universal Christ is going to answer all of the big worldview questions. I don't think it answers it satisfactorily, but they're going to answer who we are as humans, what's, you know, what's wrong with the world? How does it get fixed, where we're going, when we die? All of these things are being answered in this worldview of Universal Christ, which essentially, separates Jesus and Christ into two completely separate entities, with Jesus becoming more of an example or a model of the human and divine, uh, you know, coexisting in the same body. But ultimately, we look to Jesus, according to the universal Christ, as this model where we can accomplish the same thing. And so according to this worldview, you know, Krista, you are the Christ, I am the Christ. And I know that sounds so, so out there and kind of fringe for a lot of our listeners, but this has become the dominant worldview of progressive of Christianity. So I think universal Christ, that, that deep sense of that real, um, maybe more Buddhist approach to contemplative spirituality, that's becoming, you know, a real dominant expression of progressive Christianity. But I would also say another interesting thing where our worlds really converge is the whole critical theory conversation because back in 2019, when I wrote another gospel, I had the the book completely written. And then I realized, you know, this critical theory thing is really emerging in progressive Christianity. So I want to make sure I write a few paragraphs about it, right? And I'm laughing because, I mean, The thought that it was an afterthought is funny to me now because again, the idea of approaching everybody as according to their, either their socioeconomic class or their ethnic background or the color of their skin or their ability or disability. I mean, all of these categories have become dominant. And then the intersection of oppression and all these things that you guys spend so much time talking about. Whereas that was something that was emerging in progressive Christianity in 2019. Again, it has become, as you, as you both know, and you've been observing and commenting on even the intersection of how the race conversation has become conflated with the gender ideology you know radical gender theory conversation has almost become one and the same, so this thing is is rapidly changing rapidly, accelerating, and I think in a really aggressive pace. So I would say maybe those two things, the universal Christ and then the the dominance of that critical theory conversation coming to the forefront of the gospel of progressive Christianity are probably the two things that are emerging and probably will continue to emerge as the dominant expression.
0: Very good. Um, Well, I have all kinds of thoughts about that, but let's do another question. Um, We have one on YouTube, I believe. Um, It's from
1: Jennifer under United Next Gen Ministry. She says, how do we approach apathy to the faith in teens in a me-focused instant gratification world? How... Uh, how do we help cultivate a hunger for the word?
2: You know, I mean, my answer is probably not going to be super popular in a lot of churches right now. <laughs> but honestly, uh, I-, I think the answer to this is we have to start preaching what Christianity actually is. I, I mean, I even think about, I've been thinking so much lately, even about how we've approached, even from you know, theologically orthodox, conservative Christians, even how we'll talk about sin. Have you guys noticed how we'll we'll often talk about even sexual sin in terms of its effect on you as a person? Right. Well, we we kind of for the last 20 years or so, as the ch- as a church in general, kind of tend to say, you know, we don't want you to have sex before you get married because it's what's best for you. It's because God has your best, and He does. Oh my gosh, certainly it is best for you to wait until you're married to have sex. But we make it so much about its effect on you that I think that's backfiring now because you could have an atheist who lives their entire life in rebellion against God and they can have a felt happiness in their life. They can have, you know, a sense of like, hey, this worked out great for me. I'm fine. My life was happy. And if all we do is teach about sin on its effects on you, then we're not teaching the full gospel. The full gospel is that your sin is rebellion against a holy God, no matter how it makes you feel. You might feel fine for the rest of your life in rebellion against God, but that doesn't change the fact that you're in rebellion against God. And so I think we need to get back to framing the gospel for what it is, and that is saving you from your slavery to sin, saving you from your path of hell and destruction. I mean, and and, you know, again, we, we tend as Christians to swing to opposite end of the pendulum, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that we get back to Helen, you know, Helen Brimstone sermons all the time. But we have to communicate that Christianity isn't just something you add to your life because it's going to make you happy or it's going to bring you joy or make you fulfilled. It will do those things in a, in a way you may not expect. But that's not why you become a Christian. You become a Christian because you need salvation from your sins. And I think that if we, you know, especially with teens. If we'll just shoot straight with them about what the gospel is really about, I don't know. I, I suspect we're going to see a good response of of teens. That I, I think teens are tired. I, one thing we know about Gen Z is they know when they're being you know placated. They know when they're being uh, you know what's the word patronized. They don't they don't want to be patronized. Just tell them the truth. Tell them what the gospel is. And um, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's not a popular answer, but. I think we just have to get back to what the gospel actually is and stop trying to make it so pretty to everybody.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I I think I would add to that. Like one thing I've had a lot of success in with teens in overcoming apathy is teaching them how to interpret the Bible, is teaching them the basic tools of how to do it and then letting them run with it. Like letting them, um, when I used to lead a, a teen group at my church, I taught them basic skills and how to interpret the Bible. And then I had them prepare lessons and teach each other. And that really got them engaged in the process because then they felt like, oh, you know, I'm empowered. I, I, you know, it's, it was good. It was, it was a really um, great way to get them engaged. Okay. Elisa, we're gonna, um, I want to make sure that everyone knows how to pre-order your book and um, to you know if there's any perks to doing it uh because i know that the more pre-orders you get it helps to push the book out once it drops and it helps its its status and then that pushes the book out to more people on amazon so it there really is a tangible reason yes. why we want yeah. people to pre-order the book
2: yeah thank you so much for asking that so guys i'm so excited We only just started promoting the book kind of actively about three days ago. And we have such a strong momentum going on Amazon. And, you know, just me as a person, I'm kind of allergic to the whole idea of like, oh, we just want to sell and we want to do this. That's not what this is about. What this is about is, frankly, we just we live in an algorithm world, right? So when we get momentum going, it triggers the algorithms on Amazon and all these other places to put the book suggestion into the news feeds of more people. So one way you can help with that is by preordering. You can go to alisachilders.com and there's a little uh, button there where you can pre-order from all sorts of different outlets. If you pre-order the book, you're gonna get access to an exclusive five uh, video series where I sit and I talk about each chapter that's in the book. We, We go through all of the different lies And I kind of give some additional insights and some uh, extra stories and just what I was thinking about when I wrote those chapters. So you'll get access to all five of those exclusive videos if you pre-order. So pre-order it and then hold on to your, you know, whatever email you get or your receipt. And then um, in about two days, I think we're gonna be announcing where you can put that information in to receive your uh, five exclusive videos. And you're going to get some uh, five PDFs that have discussion questions and things that you can go through uh, with those uh, videos. So you'll get the pre-order bonuses being the, uh, the video and the PDFs, but also just, you know, any help you can give as far as sharing it on social media, all of that helps so much to just keep that momentum going.
0: Awesome. So uh, we're going to, Watch a video from Impact Three Hundred and Sixty. You want to stay on and
2: talk to Petty Mo about uh, Instagram posts. I always, I'm always here for Petty Mo.
0: Petty Mo, she's a good one. All right, we're gonna go uh, hear from our friends at Impact Three Hundred and Sixty, and then we're gonna come back and look at some recent comments on the Center for Biblical Unity Instagram feed. It's gonna be big fun because they were all coming for Monique. We'll see you in two minutes. Everywhere I looked, everything I read, all the things the world told me about who I was, what I should like, it was all there. The thinking had been done for me. But what if you can't shake the feeling that you are destined to be something else, someone else? Someone other than just popular. Or unpopular. The smart one. the Christian, the sinner, in the world today, how does anybody know who, or what to be, or what to even know? I found those answers and more. I learned how to think through the superficial problems and transcendent issues before me. And begin to understand what God has revealed and why faith is not blind what I believe in my heart, from my experiences. To know and respond to endless challenges of my faith with love and with confidence.
1: So that I may listen and engage because I know what I believe is true.
0: A community where you are transformed in your character as you discover your identity in Christ and your God-given calling. It's not only who you are, but where you should be. A community where you are cultivated as a leader. Where you will learn how to live a life of service to others as you follow Jesus Christ.
1: The Impact 360 Institute is a community of experiential and holistic learning where you develop confidence in
0: what you have always believed in your heart to be the truth. Then, take what you know about God and what you know about yourself and live as an agent of change in your own community. Know Jesus more deeply. Be transformed in your character. Live a life of kingdom influence.
1: Know. Be. Live.
0: All right, we're back. And we want to say once again thank you to our friends at Impact360. Um, we're going to be there in a few weeks, October,
1: October 4th or 5th, something like that.
0: So if you think that they might be, uh, some help to you and your family and your discipleship efforts, go check them out. They have a gap year program. They have a one week and two week summer camp option as well as a master's degree option, but, uh, go check out the great work that they are doing. And, um, it's fun when we get to go and, people that some of the young people come up to us and say things like my mom loves your podcast. She makes me listen to you in the car. I'm yeah.
1: like, I know that feeling.
0: <laughs> yes. Okay. Right. So, um, this was, I think maybe even a couple of weeks ago now, um, our social media manager, the lovely and gracious Letitia, had posted what she did was she took a post that you did old blog post, Mm -hmm. and turned it into like an Instagram graphic thing to try to point people to the, to the post, um, you know, just to kind of recycle some content. So your review on James Cone's book has been out for a little bit, but she um, I think Bob's got the, the post here. It's called four reasons why black liberation theology is another gospel. And basically you did a review of James Cone's book on black liberation theology. Mm -hmm. Got a lot of good comments and, um, but it's people are still commenting on it. And the, the post is well over a week. I think it might be two weeks old and we're still getting notifications of people posting on it. And at this point, most of the comments, well, let's just say, they don't they don't they I don't, don't like know that it's you
1: most of the comments but <laughs> the I recent do, ones yeah. yeah the recent ones are like yeah. yeah we'll we'll go through the comments all right so we're going to start with but this you. is my unbothered
0: face so monique's going to help educate us on how to be unbothered by people on social media first of all folks i said what i said okay i have
1: said what i said now if you're going to come at me with some um Subjective, we just talked about subjective truth. You, well, you just reading the Bible through the white lens. You just read, that's, that's white interpretation. White people aren't even in there in the Bible. Like, how are you trying to tell me that this is the black perspective and the white perspective when these people groups didn't even exist during this time? No, we actually go back to the historical book and we look at how was, how was this meant? If I, you know what, I might make me an Instagram reel because you've been after me. And just tell all the haters that's hating, look, when you want to understand how to interpret scripture, you need to look back at the, ori- the original author's intent and understand how the original listeners or readers would have understood what was being said to them. Black people and white people don't have nothing to do with Jeremiah 29, 11. I am not interpreting Jeremiah twenty nine eleven 11 through some black lens, but this is what people constantly want to come at me with. And I'm just like, and like, you're wrong. Auntie, is it wrong for me to be so? I don't care.
0: Because like, I don't. Oh, and then I got another story. Go All on. right, well, let's read <laughs> So this one is uh, uh, Gospel on the Corner says, This is an unfortunate post, a product of colonized biblical interpretation. Mm. It's very, very difficult. Hermeneutics 101
1: would teach against that. Everyone receives the gospel tainted and blessed by their cultures. Mm. And while I can, I can to a degree say that. Let's finish it. As soon
0: as you realize this, that this includes the truncated interpretations, White Book have left for you, the better off you will be. So, you know, this is part of the. I'm, this is actually the exact problem. I said earlier in the show that I have. I have areas that I still need to work on. In your know, No, and oh. academically. Oh, never mind. That. That there's reasons why I'm taking this class, mm-hmm. and there's reasons why it, there's things in there's holes in, in my knowledge. This issue that this commenter is bringing up is, in my opinion, the number one issue that, you know, earlier I asked Elisa, like, what's on the horizon? What do you think people need to be talking about? If someone were to ask me that question, mm-hmm. it would be this nobody's working on the problem of social location when it comes to hermeneutics um this is this is a very big common statement well since all of us have lenses then all lenses are equal Mm. and so if you come at scripture with a black lens a white lens which i would question i don't even know what that means but in my opinion This is the issue, the the big question that I do not hear any apologist working on right now is, can you get objective interpretations of scripture? Is that Mm -hmm. a thing? Mm -hmm. And how do you overcome cultural, your cultural bias when it comes to interpreting scripture? There is this wide assumption on one side, that there's no way to overcome cultural bias. Everyone just has a lens. And then on the other side of the conversation, there's just this assumption that you can come to objective interpretations, but they have no account for why. Mm. And so this that that's where I'm at when I read this. All right, now Penny Mo is going to comment. When I
1: read this. it, I just see you giving your opinion on something that you didn't like.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You haven't stated anything factual you've just literally placed your opinion
0: so that that person has bias about the bias yes is what you're saying how do you know how do you know that you are having an objective god's eye view on the problem yes that's your issue which is which is a lot of cones
1: interpretation of scripture itself cone starts from the premise that god is black if god is black scriptures will be will be read through a specific lens the the whole narrative of Egypt means something specific to black people but how does the narrative of Egypt mean something specific to black people when the black people hadn't even like the 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 understanding of blackness and and what it means to be black in America in, in well when he was writing in like the early 60s that had nothing to do with the Israelites it, it it's people don't understand that he's offering an interpretation of scripture and then mm. all we have done is taken that interpretation of scripture and now said well he gave an interpretation I'm going to give my interpretation you must give your interpretation but it's all it, little my truth it's all little my truth that's mm. all it is. it's all it, everybody's just saying well to me the bible means this All I'm saying is that we have to remove the me from the equation and look at how did people interpret, how did people understand what was being written to them? And how would the author have, you know, why would he have written that? But people lose their mind. Like, oh my gosh, we cannot, you know, take time to actually think about what the original author's intent was.
2: Well
0: let's go down. Um can on. I can I say a couple things?
2: I gotta I gotta say something here. So like Krista, I think to your I want to say something to each of these points because I think this is really important. Um when it comes to the objective meaning of the text, I think the main thing that th- there's like there's like these two different approaches. And Monique, you kind of touched on it, like talking about the uh you know the the uh the Israelites in Egypt, you know, and how that might mean something sort of specific, or m- maybe even have a more meaningful sort of application for, say, a black person or something like that. That's really a different question, even than what the objective meaning of the text is, because there can be a ob- there is an objective meaning of every text. This blows people's minds when I say this in conferences. I'll say to people, "Did you know that there's only one correct mm-hmm. interpretation of every single Bible verse?" And even in conservative churches, people are looking at me like. Wait, what? <laughs> and uh-huh. I and I no, I don't claim to know what it is in absolutely every case. I'm fallible. But my goal and your goal should not be to just, you know, rush to the application, but we should first try to to figure out what the author intended to communicate. And for that, we have words, right? That's the best we've got. But since the 60s, we have the deconstruction of text. And I I bring this bell all the time, but that's because I think it's a huge bell that people don't realize is ringing. And that's the Jacques Derrida bell, right? He was Uh referred to as the father of deconstruction. He didn't believe that words could be pinned down to singular meanings. And so therefore, the intent of the author had no more bearing on the meaning than the interpretation of the reader or the hearer, right? So that's, and we're, that's what everybody's doing now. And so, where, where, like to take your example, Monique, of of how the story of the Israelites in Egypt might mean something, or it might even, I would grant, have a meaningful application for a black person, but it's not going to mean something different than it meant originally, right? So here's an example. Just I'll swing this into my own context. Um, when I went to the Cross Examined Instructor Academy in 2016. Uh, I had this amazing experience where Jay Werner Wallace and Frank Turk were just affirming me. And they were saying, you know, you need to be doing this. And I hadn't even started a blog yet. And really, that was the springboard that led me into apologetics. And I'll never forget going back to my niece's house. I was spending the night at her house. And that scripture of Mary being, you know, after she got the revelation that she was going to be the father, the mother of Jesus, saying she treasured all these things in her heart. Now, that passage came to my mind. And it sort of had a special application to me in that moment because I remember relating with it and thinking she treasured all these things in her heart. It was like there's so much I couldn't communicate to people, but I was treasuring them in in my heart. Now, at the same time, that doesn't mean that that verse means that Elisa Childers was going to have this moment, you know, in Southern California where she, you know, that's not what that verse is about, right? So we have to keep the objective meaning in view, and then there can be different applications Uh, for, for someone's individual journey or what they might relate with. And that's where we can learn from each other, certainly. But it can't divorce itself from what the text actually means. And so I think that's the biggest thing where Krista, I'm I'm with you. I wish somebody would do some really good work on this, where I think so many Christians, we do need to get, you know, somebody to do some PhD work or something in that topic, but also just even on the lay level, I think the average Christian needs to yeah. learn the difference mm-hmm. between interpretation and application. Those are two very different things.
0: And yeah, and I have a whole theory that what's happening right now in a lot of discussions about race and justice is actually not an interpretation problem, it's an application That's right. problem. right. Mm-hmm. And can somebody name, and put it in the chat if you know the book, because we have a lot of informed viewers, but I can't think of one book that discusses how to get solid applications, mm. that not all applications are equal. Mm-hmm. And this is where I see so many of the, the big Eva voices who are on the other side of the conversation, and Monique and I on race and justice, a lot of times their exegesis is really solid, but where it goes off the rails is in the application. And um, so that's a whole a whole other issue. But it is. Yeah, it is. All right, I want to read a couple more comments here and then let you guys talk some more. All right. Uh Bob, if you scroll down to the um yeah, just keep scrolling down a little bit. A little bit more. A little a little more. Right. Oh uh, no. That one looks different than mine. If well, all right, keep going. Okay, never mind. I'll just read it. This is from Jenna Cowens. Because the white perspective is the only one that counts, right? Foolish content.
1: My thing is foolish
0: comments
1: why if if you think that the black perspective is so right why don't you just run with that then like if there's these two perspectives or nine perspectives or whatever why are you so bothered that i'm elevating the quote-unquote white one why don't you just live your life happy with the the perspective that you believe in that is what i really wanted to say in my (laughs) heart but instead i think i put something nice like truly there is only one lens to interpret scripture but y'all, y'all.
0: We had someone come on, Joy, Joy, Joy's in the middle. Joy in the middle. Like she, Joy in the middle. She's a socialist. She's a Christian socialist. That's precious. So she had a long, long comment for yeah. you. Yeah. Um. No, this post was not helpful. Again, opinion. I would strongly encourage you to read Frederick Douglass. Uh-huh. Yes. We like history at the Center for Biblical Unity. Yes. Um, I seriously doubt you are knowledgeable enough to have a legit understanding or critique of liberation theology. And why
1: is it that if you disagree, then all of a sudden you're stupid? Like, why can't I be intelligent and just disagree?
0: So maybe you actually do understand it. Maybe I do. You just disagree with it. There does seem to be a bit of an assumption that, well, you, you must... You're not qualified. I'm not you're- qualified. I'm not
1: black. I'm not whatever. Do you ever get that, Alisa, where it's like, well, you, you you just don't understand. You don't, don't understand.
2: progressive. Oh, push- you guys. Otherwise, you I, would agree with it. Yeah. Every Every day, every day, people say things like, oh, you're just a singer. You know, you don't have a degree. You don't have. I mean, of course, it's I mean, the, the this is why for my homeschool this year, I'm. Absolutely just in, it just drowning my kids in critical thinking and learning about logical fallacies, about uh, ad hominem attacks, because Monique, those are all ad hominem, right? And that's the number one thing I have found in progressive Christianity is that people assume that if you disagree, you either don't understand it or you're just you're unaware of a larger conversation that's going on. And sometimes, you know, I do in my frustration want to say, well, I'm aware of the larger conversation, but I just disagree with a lot of it, you know? So I'm going to say what I'm going to say. But yeah, I, I have found that to be true all the time. And, and also I wanted to point out something in that last comment that I that I think we're seeing more and more of, and this is really relevant to the work that the two of you do. And that's uh, uh, things being sort of um, framed by their helpfulness or harmful. Like we have these categories of like, Mm. your comment is helpful or harmful. It's oppressive or liberating. It's good or bad. These are all moral categories. And they're, they're categories that can be in the realm of objective truth if they're grounded in objective truth, right? If we know what's objectively true about morality, then we can know what's good or bad, helpful or harmful, oppressive or liberating. But if we remove the category of objective truth... And we're only assessing claims based on what we personally, according to our own sort of instinctive, you know, moral compass, think are helpful, harmful, oppressive, liberating, good or bad. Then that's just moral relativism. And I think that's where our culture is at. People are not assessing claims like nobody's interacting with what you've said by saying, hey, Monique appreciate your perspective, but here's where I think you've gotten this wrong. This is where I think you've you've made a factual error. This is where I think you've misunderstood Cohn, or this is where I think you have mischaracterized. A pred- no, they're not saying that. They're saying, this isn't helpful. This is harmful. You're stupid. You don't know what you're talking about. You're just caught up in whiteness or this or that. So I think that that's where we're at in culture though. This is why this, is why this whole live your truth thing is such mm-hmm. a big topic because people don't know how to assess claims anymore based on objective truth. yes and
1: I i would say sorry in in addition to that when you look at this harmful oppressive like your language is harmful this is oppressive this is um damaging this is traumatic i'm surprised no one used the word traumatic on there that is all a part of this whiteness conversation because it groups everything together with um you know the idea that this white way of thinking um and I put that in quotes, like, you know, that there is a white way of thinking and that the white way of thinking is oppressive and the white way of thinking just brings more damage to society and things like that. Y'all can miss me with it, because I am unbothered, but. So here's a
0: claim. This guy uh-huh. says, um, is Mr. Legacy Jones. Mr. Is that what? I don't know. What that says. All right. It seems like you're trying to link Dr. Cohn to Marxism. I am. I wasn't trying. This I is did. yet another disingenuous take on critical race theory. No, it isn't. Which is a dishonest bearing false witness th- that happens.
1: So we can look if it, And this is,
0: this is where I just wish. He that- says he's a black Christian who's done two decades in racial re- reconciliation. This post is not in good faith. It's not a good faith introduction to liberation theology. Liberation theology isn't solely black either. I mean, he, he. Maybe he doesn't know well, I don't black. believe that I
1: ever stated that liberation theology was solely black. Liberation yeah, theology never actually started in South America. So no, it's not solely black. Um
0: But you are saying that Cone is linked to Marxism Cone is
1: linked to linked to Marxism because liberation theology has Marxist roots. I do link critical theory to Marxism because of Hello the Frankfurt School. So I just wish that people would come with like data like facts, like bring your receipts that do not link Cone to um um like liberation theology, even though his book is black liberation theology and that doesn't link liberation theology itself to socialism or Marxism and all of that. Like
0: Petty Moe, Petty Moe was looking for receipts. All right, one more, K-Murph really? 898. It's unfortunate that a center that claims to support unity is demonizing other Christians who study scripture through a different lens. We all have a different lens and culture that we view the Bible through. Unfortunately, it looks like this sinner is using a whitewashed lens, wishing Christians could work toward true unity and stop attacking each other's theological differences.
1: So I started to respond to this person, and I felt so strongly that I had to erase my response. It was so bad. Even Petty Mo has, a, 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 I feel like, an attachment to the Holy Spirit where it's like, no, nah, no, nah, Petty Mo can't go that far. <laughs> Petty Mo, Petty Mo, you need to calm down. But it's like, I, you do recognize that you're coming on our page and like, doing the very thing that you're accusing me of doing, right? Like, can we talk about that? Or is that not on the table? You know what I mean? But that's okay. What say you, Auntie? <laughs>
2: Well, I think, you know, here's the truth. When you are a truth teller in a culture that really wants to live by lies, there like I've had to navigate this in my own ministry. I don't even really look at comments anymore. Um if something is important enough, yes. my people will bring it to my attention. Like if there's if I've made a factual error, this actually happened a couple years ago, maybe a year ago, I'd made a video um, where I had a factual error in there and somebody brought it to my attention. My people brought it to my attention. You know what I did? I took the video down. I corrected the error and I re-uploaded it. And I was thankful. I was thankful for the correction. I always want to make sure that what I'm saying is accurate. Mm-hmm. And if I've gotten something wrong, I want to know about it. But I've also found that some of this stuff can be such a distraction because I think that the enemy of our souls would love to get us totally distracted in the petty, stupid things that people are saying to try to derail the truth. Mm. And um, so so if something comes into my news, you know, like if a comment comes to my attention that is making claims about me or something like that, I always, always, every time, no matter how petty it seems, no matter how mean it is or abusive it is, I always stop, and the first question I ask myself is: Is this true? Is this true about me? Am Mm -hmm. I doing X Y Z? Am I doing that? Am I, you know, guilty of whatever they're saying? And you know, typically, I, I. fairly quickly have an idea of whether or not I am doing that or not. And if I know before the Lord and before the people I'm accountable to that it's not true, man, I just move on. And I just try to try to insulate myself. And I don't really read a lot of it, but I will leave it up. And the reason I leave it up, and I've told people this at conferences, I say, look, uh, I'm I I guess I'm in one sense, I don't think I'm nearly as controversial as you guys are and some of the, you know, the work that you're doing in the race conversations, because that's just such a hot button topic. But I, I always tell people, look in my just go take a little gander in the YouTube comments of my page oh. because what's coming for me today is coming for you tomorrow. Right. Are, you, are you are you ready? Are you ready to be called mm. all these names? Are you ready to be? For people, you know, like Monique, you you are constantly being called, you know, you're just propping up whiteness or you're this or that. And, you know, like you have to know who you are inside of yourself. And so I think all of us need to do that. Like, look for what's coming for Monique and Krista today, because it's coming for you tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And what's coming for me today is coming for you tomorrow. And so we just need to be ready to stand, I think.
0: Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um... Gosh, I, I do not like engaging with social media because it, yeah, they're the things that it can bring out in me, but um you know, I I do think that there is a degree of I said what I said. And if there's something on there that someone brings to my attention, much like you're saying like, hey, look, you know, I actually think that you were wrong in this, or this probably should have been said better, could have been said, you know, differently to be more helpful. I will definitely look at it. I will definitely consider it. I have had people DM me and say, hey, look, you know, coming at you in love and, you know, really just want you to consider this. And it's really those people have helped change my mind, complete strangers. So it's a, not a thing of, you know, just being prideful and being like, I said what I said. But on the, the other hand of that comment, it's like, I can't be shaken and moved and stirred in my emotions every time somebody comes to me and says, well, you just whitewashed or you just, you know, a this or a that. You can call me what you want. You like those, the names are going to come. You have to be ready for the names to come. Good.
0: Mm. That's it's good true. Word. I mean,
2: right now, it seems like the the number one way to shut down a conversation is just to call someone a racist or call them yeah. a Christian nationalist. It's those two things. If you, if you just call somebody one of those two things, you can effectively shut down most conversations. And it's going to take people like us saying, you know what? It's not going to shut down the conversation. You know, yeah. six and stones. You can call me whatever you want to call me. I know who I am. I know what I am. And let's continue to, to talk about these things and speak truth, you know? Yes.
0: Well, hopefully that'll encourage some people in their own social media engagement, you know, that yeah. it's, it, it, it doesn't have to always, you don't have to respond to everything. Not everything needs a response.
1: Nor do you have to sink down into the depths of despair and depression just because somebody called you a name, like, all right. it'll be what it is.
0: Well, thank you, Elisa, for hanging out with us tonight. It thank you. Great to to see you, and um, looking forward to getting your book.
1: Pre-order it. Go yes. do it.
2: Yeah, and you guys have uh, copies coming to you. I think they're coming out this week, so you awesome. should have those soon. So, yeah, I
1: can't wait. All right. Well, I'll text you after this. Of course. Okay. Can. Yes. <laughs> all and, right. All right. Everyone, Bye, have guys. a good night.
0: God bless. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.